I'm your host, Charles Romans, and welcome to the Shadows of Legend. In this episode, we will examine not simply a ghost story, but arguably the ghost story, as well as the author behind it. In a very real way, this story exemplifies how the shadowy realm populated by ghosts and spirits, that dimension that marches next to our own and matches each of our steps with whispering footfalls, softly echoes our own. It is a tale that has been told many times and in many ways, but its core themes of death and existence beyond the mortal sphere, of punishment and the hope of redemption, and of how spirits both human and of other origins are connected even through the veils that obscure the eyes of our conscious minds. I am, of course, speaking of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. The story most definitely is pure fiction. Spun with an inimitable style by a master storyteller in 1843 and embellished by others as the years went by. But fiction mirrors fact in many ways, and the story can truly be said to be a product of Victorian England. Long before the era in which we enjoy brilliantly lit skylines in living spaces capable of banishing the shadows at a mere flick of a switch, the landscapes of that time huddled beneath long flickering shadows enhanced rather than banished by the limited glow of gaslight. Homes and businesses still relied upon guttering candles or the smoky light of oil lamps when the beacon of the heavens, the sun, set or in places where the orb never cast its eye. Stone was the choice of building materials in the Victorian era because it offered resistance to heat. One might think this strange until realizing that heat in the form of fireplaces could be manufactured for the winter, but cooling, aside from rudimentary vents and the over-large windows for which the area is also known, was beyond them. Air conditioning would not be invented until 1902 by Willis Haviland Carrier, half a world away in Brooklyn, New York. And with no source of energy to power them, a fan of anything beyond the most rudimentary sort would have been impossible. Charles Dickens, no doubt, was among those who sweltered in the crowded cities in the summer, or perhaps was among those fortunate enough to escape to the country beyond the press, noise, and inevitable filth of one of the largest industrialized nations in the known world. But winters were scarcely better for most. Wood or coal-burning fireplaces and stoves were indifferent sources of comfort against the often brutal winters, barely warming the rooms in which they stood. Most Victorians were forced to resort to heavy clothing even indoors, and canopy beds and heavy blankets to ward them against the cold radiating from the unfeeling stone. This was the world which birthed the tale of Scrooge and his unlooked-for spirit visitors. The tale begins with a statement that Marley was dead, and proceeded to go to some length to prove this point in spite of the fact that even the death of Marley, Scrooge's former business partner, shuffled off the mortal coil some seven years before the beginning of the tale. This might seem strange, but Victorian medicine was not what we now enjoy and, shall we say, mistakes were made by coroners of the day. And this was also the era which brought us ornate metal grave coverings and secure burial vaults because ghosts were not the extent of what Victorians feared. But that is a story for another episode. For now, we will just say that Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, 1872, and Bram Stoker's Dracula, 1897, were also published in the same century. John William Polidori's The Vampire, however, was published in 1819, 
and perhaps could have been found among Scrooge's papers. More pointedly, that tale was written during the contest that also produced Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and both most likely provided fuel for Dickens' own imagination. In fact, the author had a lifelong immersion in the supernatural and the horrific. John Forster, Charles Dickens' biographer and friend, said that he had something of a hankering after ghosts. Dickens' interest, his hankering, was probably developed at a very young age by his nanny and the terrifying story she told him at bedtime. Miss Mercy would tell him the story of Captain Murder and added fright to the story by clawing at the air and uttering a long, hollow groan. Perhaps this memory is echoed in Dead Marley's groan of despair. And as an adult, Dickens wrote, So acutely did I suffer that I sometimes used to plead I thought I was hardly strong enough and old enough to hear the story again just yet. But she never spared me one word of it. Her name was Mercy, though she had none on me. The author's passionate yet uncomfortable relationship with the horrific continued throughout his adolescence. Dickens avidly read every issue of the horror magazine, The Terrific Register, a so-called penny dreadful of the day and a precursor to true crime stories, although he said the stories made him unspeakably miserable and frightened the very wits out of my head. Still, the interest maintained itself and grew as he himself grew into adulthood. As an adult living in the heyday of 19th century spiritualism, he became somewhat of a skeptic. As so many others were flocking to seances, Dickens stated he believed that the paranormal phenomenon had a psychological basis. Even with the rampant rise in ghost sightings of the time, he wrote that apparitions were a result of a disordered condition of the nerves or senses, much like Scrooge doubting his own senses because a little thing affects them, a slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. But even as a skeptic, Charles Dickens kept an open mind about the paranormal. He kept that hankering and curiosity about what lies beyond the grave. He once told a fellow writer, Don't suppose that I am so bold and arrogant as to settle what can and what cannot be after death. Charles Dickens was, in fact, so open-minded that he was a founding member of the London Ghost Club. Founded in 1862, it was one of the first paranormal research groups. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, was also an early member of the club. Doyle not only believed in ghosts and spirits, but also in fairies and that Harry Houdini had real magical powers. Even though Doyle and Houdini were close friends and the escape artist repeatedly insisted he was not magical. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini, like Carmilla and Dracula, are stories for another time. Charles Dickens didn't completely discount the existence of ghosts, but he was interested in using the Ghost Club to debunk as many of London's hauntings as possible. The London Ghost Club's first major case was the investigation of the spirit box belonging to the Davenport brothers, a team of magicians from America. The brothers claimed to harness supernatural forces for their spirit cabinet trick, where one of the men would be tied up in a box surrounded by musical instruments. The box would then be closed and the instruments would play, but when the box was opened, the man inside was still tied up. The result, of course, was that the brothers claimed ghosts were obviously playing the music. The Ghost Club built a replica of the spirit box and showed that it could be done without the aid from the other side. The club debunked many other ghost sightings with Dickens as the driving force, so much so that the London Ghost Club 
disbanded for several years after his death in 1870. Though avid to debunk ghostly visitations, Diggins did believe wholeheartedly in the new so-called science of mesmerism. He was convinced he himself could heal others by putting them into a hypnotic trance. He spent day after day gazing into the eyes of people claiming to be tormented by anxiety, depression, and insomnia, to name a few of the conditions he cured. An interesting note, however, is that so many of the people Dickens cured were attractive females, and his wife of 22 years took their surviving 10 children and left him. Another interesting note is that Dickens refused to ever let anyone attempt to hypnotize him. As a result of his skepticism, Charles Dickens had a running battle with fake mediums and seances with exposés in magazines and taunted spiritualists in the media. But they, in fact, may have had the last laugh. Within a very short time after his death, Dickens' ghost was reported to have made an appearance at a seance in the United States. The group at the seance insisted the spirit of the credulous skeptic had spoken to them through a series of raps and knocks. He not only dictated various messages, but included the ending of his unfinished last book, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. None of the remaining members of the London Ghost Club showed up to debunk the seance, so the word of the American group is all we have to go on. That, or perhaps the author's own quote from years before, ideas like ghosts, according to the common notion of ghosts, must be spoken to a little before they will explain themselves. Dickens' own beliefs and the beliefs of the era no doubt shaped the story that had become not only a Christmas favorite and stable with its undeniably happy ending, but also has canonized how ghost stories are perceived. It begins with an eye toward the past, acknowledging that death is both inevitable and a dominating factor of our lives. By stressing and offering proof of that death, it establishes Dickens' own skepticism later in life notwithstanding that ghosts and the spirit realm exist. Scrooge questions his sentence at Marley's appearance, but he does accept his presence. The story then continues with Marley threatening his former business partner with his own mortality. Isn't that Marley wishes his erstwhile friend ill, he simply reveals the inevitable, which is, of course, the most terrifying thing about the existence of ghosts. All too soon we shall all join their company. Marley then reveals the punishment he is enduring for his own miserly existence, the ponderous chain he must wear as he moves unseen throughout the world he can no longer touch, a world in which he refused to be a part of while among the living, and he issues a warning to Scrooge that his own chains were every bit as heavy seven years ago and that he has labored upon it since. It is important to note a few things at this point. One is that Marley and the host of ghosts Scrooge briefly sees from his window are the only actual ghosts in A Christmas Carol. We call the three ghosts by that title, and they refer to themselves that way as well, but they are not human spirits at all. They are spirits of concepts and times, actually, and never themselves walk the earth as mortals. They existed before making themselves known to Scrooge, and will exist long after Scrooge's last candle is extinguished. They only appear to Scrooge at Marley's request, which is another point worth noting. Without the intercession of Marley's anguished spirit, the three spirits would have calmly allowed Scrooge to pass into his own afterworldly punishment. Take a moment and let that sink in. Spirits that can bend space and time, 
entities that can walk unseen among the living at any time, did not choose to interfere in the life of humans. Not that they could not, because obviously they could at will, but rather they chose not to do so. A little reflection on that somehow makes the cherished holiday classic infinitely more terrifying. Conversely, the three spirits from A Christmas Carol do not walk through the shadows of legend. They are the legends who cast those shadows, and their reach extends through time and space. A comforting thought to gather closely about you behind the drawn canopy of your cold stone bedchamber. Another thing of particular note is the appearance of the spirits. The ghost of Christmas past appears as a gray-haired figure of a child's size, though in appearance it is described as an adult seen from a distance. It isn't wrinkled with the age the gray hair might imply, either, and a light shines from its head. Perhaps this is a nod to the fact that all memories are seen from a distance and are lit by their importance to us. Memories are also evergreen in our minds, not seen as decrepit, but rather as things that could have transpired only yesterday when we think of them. This does not mean that all such memories are pleasant, as we see when Scrooge attempts to extinguish that spirit's light. The ghost of Christmas present, by comparison, is a giant, dominating Scrooge's vision with an overwhelming energy. This spirit shows Scrooge all of the world and its joy that he had purposely shut out, and perhaps the futility of his efforts as well. Scrooge is shown that though he refuses joy, joy exists nonetheless, and the only one he is hurt by his denial is himself. This spirit is everything the miser is not, and to learn from him, Scrooge must accept his own guilt and responsibility for the life he has led or chosen not to lead. This concept of guilt, born of the second spirit, is crystallized in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. This spirit is neither nostalgic nor joyful, but a silent guide into an unknown realm. He appears cloaked and shadowed and refuses Scrooge's attempt at conversation and shows the miser only sorrow that will come from his future, both to himself and to others he has refused to help. This visitor leaves Scrooge in tears and in terror, though repentant and committed to living a better life if permitted to do so. The finale to A Christmas Carol, both in print and in the countless adaptations in cinema, is an overall happy one. The miser repents, the sick are cured, and joy is had by all. Scrooge may have doubted his senses, and in fact, it could have all been a dream, a theory borne out by the spirits repeatedly mocking Scrooge with his own words. But the results were tangible in the real world. Lives were changed, and for the better. Which only serves to prove that a Merry Christmas can be had, even in the darkest days, if we all strive for a better relationship with our fellow man, and also that there are bright lights even along the pathways leading to the shadows of legend. Merry Christmas, and have a wonderful new year. We'll return with fresh episodes, fresh pathways into the shadows of legend in January. Thank you.